Some years ago, I had uh, the privilege of ministering in the Bible conference at Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana. Winona Lake is a somewhat historic place. A great Bible conference center has been there for many years. But I had the joy of uh, ministering there for a week with Chuck Swindoll and Dr. Bruce Walke in the Bible conference. We had a great time. One of the highlights, one of the privileges of that week was to develop an acquaintance and, uh, from my end anyway, a friendship with Dr. Charles Smith, a man of God, uniquely used by the Lord in the training of young men for ministry. He is professor of theology at Grace Seminary, also director of admissions. When I was busily researching a book I wrote called The Charismatics, I found great help from a book he wrote entitled Tongues in Biblical Perspective, which I felt more than any other book I'd ever found on the subject, adequately and appropriately dealt with how you explain the phenomena of tongues if indeed it is not biblical. And your book was a great help to me in that area. Uh, since that time, we've had opportunity to fellowship from time to time, and I, I just believe that God has placed uh, Dr. Smith in a unique role within the kingdom for training of folks for ministry, and it's a privilege to have him here in our chapel this morning. And also, he'll be available, uh, I'm not sure what time, 2 to 4 this afternoon in the student center, if any of you who are interested in seminary would like to talk with him about Grace Theological Seminary, one of the very finest seminaries anywhere in our country or the world for that matter. Dr. Smith, it's great to have you with us. Come and minister the Word of God. Let's welcome him to our chapel. It's exciting to be here and to see what our Lord is doing in your midst, and uh, I'm looking forward to being on your campus for several days and uh, soak up a little bit more of what God is doing here. I'm also delighted to be able to bring you greetings from Grace Theological Seminary which just happens to be the greatest seminary in the world. And in case anyone ever challenges that, I will acknowledge that there are a few larger seminaries. There are even seminaries uh, with a nicer climate than we have. But when it comes to humility, we're tops. <laughs> I have a literature display over in your dining hall, and there are several pieces of literature over there that I would uh, encourage you to take. There's one on the distinctives of Grace Theological Seminary. If you want to understand what's different about grace, then that's the best piece of literature to pick up. There's one on biblical inerrancy. There's one on the charismatic movement. There's one on biblical creationism. I wholeheartedly endorse all of those because I wrote them. There are some others as well that I will endorse as well because while I didn't write them, I edited them. There's one on the King James uh, only, question mark, one on grace and law, and some other miscellaneous literature, for example, some literature on uh, Grace Seminary in Europe. We have an extension program in Europe that our Lord has been using over there in a very special way. So uh, help yourself to any of that literature, and there's a little sign-up sheet if you want to have some time to visit with me this afternoon. If that's impossible, you let uh, perhaps the secretary in the admissions office know, and we'll try to find a time tomorrow. Uh, or some other time before I leave the next three days. Why do I revere these 66 books as the Word of God? In particular, I want to ask the question this morning, why do I revere these 39 books in the Old Testament as the Word of God? 
I've discovered that uh, I read books on how we got our Bible, and I read books on biblical authority, and to be honest with you, I come away feeling uh, a little disheartened, a little discouraged. It's very difficult for my heart to rejoice in what my mind cannot accept. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, we're told. And, and when I read those books and they have the various kinds of tests in there with regard to biblical authority, I come away very concerned about those things. For example, most of the books that, that are written on this subject will tell you that one of the ways we know that these books are inspired of God is because uh, the church councils made some kind of decision and we're to trust that God guided those church councils. Well, that really concerns me, to be honest with you. When I look at the facts about those church councils, I realize that they were not composed of Bible students, of Bible scholars, of theologians. They really were primarily politicians more than anything else. And I frankly am not very content just to say that these men met together and decided which books we are to accept as part of our Bible. I also realize that it had already been decided long before those church councils got together to come up with any decisions. Also, if you'll realize that those church councils were really what we would call Roman Catholic church councils, and the Bible that they have ended up with has books in it that is not uh, what we have. They have additional books rather uh, in addition to the ones that we have in our Bible. And so I'm not really too comfortable. It would also be very much like deciding that we're going to turn all the books in the world over to... I realize there's a little bit of di difference, but if I were going to turn all the books in the world over to the National Council of Churches or to the World Council of Churches today and let them decide for me which books we are to have in our Bible, frankly, I wouldn't trust that uh, very far. And I really do not believe that uh, that is an adequate reason. And all of the other tests that are given, I think, very often are almost superfluous. If I were to ask a question, and I've practiced this when I'm visiting with people from time to time, I'll ask a question, I will open my Bible almost at random, and here it's Isaiah, and I'll say, why do you believe that Isaiah is inspired of God? And after a few moments of head-scratching, the person that I'm speaking with will usually say, well, I believe that Isaiah is inspired, uh, well, because it's in the Bible. And I'll say, I'm glad you believe that. I believe that, too. Let me ask you another question. Why is Isaiah in the Bible? And after a longer period of head-scratching, invariably, and if I get an answer at all, it will be, well, I believe that uh, Isaiah is in the Bible because it's inspired of God. And I'll say, I don't want to ridicule that. I like that. I'm glad you believe that, but let me be sure I understand what you're saying. How do you know that Isaiah is inspired of God? Because it's in the Bible. Uh, why is Isaiah in the Bible? Because it's inspired of God. And, and while I'm glad someone believes that, it seems to me like we're almost going around the mulberry bush or somewhere, and it's, it's not very affirming to my heart if that's the best I can do in my arguing. I would like to ask you a very simple question that I just asked, uh, uh, told you about asking other people, and see how you would answer it. But I don't want you to answer out loud. I want you to answer to yourself. I don't want you to answer out loud because I don't want to start an argument, okay? But the question would be, why is Isaiah in the Bible? And the answer is very simple. The answer is because Isaiah wrote it. That's the answer, really. You see, Isaiah was a prophet of Jehovah, and that's the whole issue. Now, I realize that I don't know 
everything that I would like to know about every portion of Scripture. There are certain parts of the Old Testament in particular that we don't know the details about authorship. But nevertheless, I have the highest authority that the basic test of authority is the authorship by a prophet. That is, that it had to be written by a prophet of Jehovah or collected under his authority. We have some similar situations in the New Testament that I trust you're familiar with. And the highest authority I have for that is none other than our Lord himself because our Lord referred to the Old Testament as the scriptures of the prophets. That's what we have in the Old Testament is those books that were written by the prophets of Jehovah, those who met the test laid down in scripture for being prophets of Jehovah. Now, let me build a foundation there to, to do something else on here for just a moment. Moses was the foundation for all of the Old Testament revelation. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of that. God spoke with Moses and dealt with, a Mo with Moses in a way that he did not deal with any of the other prophets. With Moses, my servant, I'll speak face to face with the other prophets in dreams and riddles and visions and dark sayings. But Moses had a unique relationship with the Lord, and the whole Old Testament is built upon the revelation which God gave through Moses. And you'll find that the other prophets repeatedly refer back to Moses. They quote Moses. They cite Moses. He's the basis for all of Old Testament authority, indeed for even New Testament authority in one sense, except for our, our Lord's distinctive contribution there. But the prophets refer back to Moses. For example, in the last phrases of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, God speaking through Malachi, remember the words of Moses, my servant. That's the kind of situation you have. But Moses, as he was about to die, gave to the Jewish people some, some tests whereby they could determine who was to be a prophet of Jehovah. And if a man met these tests specified by God through Moses, then what he said and what he wrote, when he said it and when he wrote it, was accepted by the people of God as authoritative. Now, there are several key passages, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses deals with this issue. But I'd like you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And I want to, I want to show you here uh, two or three tests of a true prophet of Jehovah. Deuteronomy chapter 18. There is a similar passage in chapter 13. If we have time, we'll refer to that a little bit later. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses speaks of, of the fact that God is going to raise up another prophet. And it's obvious that after that, another and another. It's obvious that he's speaking of a, a succession of prophets who are to be raised up by the Lord. And he tells the people how to determine whether or not a man is to be accepted as a true prophet. And for the moment, I want you to notice just one brief phrase in the last verse of Deuteronomy 18. Are you there? Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22. The first requirement for a true prophet of Jehovah is this. When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord. Stop. When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, I'm reading from King James. I'm not sure what version you may have there before you. The King James Bible, as most Bibles, put the, puts the word Lord here in all capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Are you familiar with the significance of that? That's a reference. It's okay if I use a long label that the theologians use, isn't it? That's a reference to the ineffable tetragrammaton. That's a nice mouthful. If you want to impress someone, try that. The ineffable tetragrammaton. 
ineffable, you'll find it in any, in any English dictionary, simply beyond expression, too holy to, to view irreverently and to take upon the lips without due reverence. Tetragrammaton is the sacred four-letter, tetra, four letters in the holy name of God. And the Jewish people viewed that holy name as so sacred that they treated it entirely differently from all other words in the Hebrew language. Uh, in fact, during periods of Jewish history, the Jews would never even take it upon their lips, only the prophets or only the high priest on the Day of Atonement when he entered the Holy of Holies would even dare pronounce the word, so much so that there is not even any agreement among scholars about how this name is to be pronounced. I was having lunch with one of the most uh, renowned Hebrew scholars in the world oh, about uh, three years ago, I suppose, and I mentioned the holy name, and I pronounced it the way most Bible students do. I pronounced it Yahweh, the Jewish name for Jehovah. And he said to me, Chuck, don't say it like that. And I said, well, how should I say it? And his answer was, I don't know. <laughs> All I know is that we don't know, and that that probably was not the correct way, because the Jewish people viewed this word, this name, as so holy that in later periods, when they were copying the scriptures, they deliberately spelled it wrong. Now, that sounds rather amazing to us, doesn't it? They put the wrong vowels on it so that you wouldn't pronounce it without thinking about it. You wouldn't pronounce it with, without being reverent and having due reverence for that sacred holy name. But Moses says that the first requirement for a true prophet of Jehovah is that he has to speak using the holy name. Now, let me ask you, what's the most familiar phrase in the Old Testament? That's easy, isn't it? You can answer this one. It won't start an argument. <laughs> the, the most familiar phrase is, Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. It's characteristic of the prophets. And similar phrases like the word of the Lord, and it's always that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The word of Jehovah, that sacred, ineffable tetragrammaton, the holy name of God. When the Jews were writing scriptures, transferring, copying manuscripts, they had to pronounce every word out loud and say it out loud, except for the tetragrammaton, the holy name. When they came to that holy name, they were not allowed to pronounce it out loud. Instead, they said, I intend to write the holy name. And then they wrote it in silence. And after they wrote it, they always took out a clean cloth and placed it on top of the name and gave adequate time for the ink to dry before they removed. They had a separate quill for writing the name. Before they gave time for the ink to dry and so forth, the name was viewed with special reverence, but it was the mark of a true prophet. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 22, and let me give you an illustration as to how this worked out in real history. 1 Kings chapter 22. We have a conflict. The king of Israel and the king of Judah, the kingdom has been divided. They are facing a common enemy. And we'll start in verse 5, 1 Kings 22, verse 5. Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Do you notice that? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Translated into good English, Jehoshaphat, a godly king, says to this ungodly king of Israel, Let's call upon a true prophet of Jehovah, one who will tell us what the will of God is, one who will say, Thus saith the Lord. Notice what happens. Then the king of Israel, they were up in his territory, 
gathered the prophets together, about four hundred men. And he said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up for the Lord. Are you looking at that? Have you noticed? Capital L, little o, little r, little d. These prophets do not say, Thus saith the Lord. These prophets use the common everyday word for Lord. In Hebrew, it's Adonai. And they simply said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat, the godly king, said, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord? Now, by the way, these others weren't worshiping pagan gods. They were just not true prophets of Jehovah, true revealers of divine truth from the Lord. They weren't spokesmen for the Lord. And they were afraid to use the sacred name for a very good reason, as we will see if we have opportunity here. Uh, if they used it and things didn't work out right, they were subject to the death penalty. So that's why they didn't want to use that sacred name. The Lord, Adonai, will deliver it. And Jehoshaphat says, Is there not here a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of him? I like the next verse. I think there's a lot of humor in the Old Testament. Perhaps my favorite verse is the one where uh, there were 185,000 Assyrians camped outside Jerusalem and, and the Lord uh, uh, slew them in the night and says, When they woke up in the morning, lo, they were all dead corpses. <laughs> I like that. They woke up dead. But, but this one is perhaps not quite as good as that. <laughs> but here the king of Israel said, There is one man whom we may call upon. His name is Micaiah. But uh, if we could translate very literally here, But I hate his guts. I mean, that's really what it says. I can't stand him. The reason being, well, I should read the text. There is one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. He'll stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. But I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Well, no wonder. If God had anything to say about this king, it's not going to be good. Jehoshaphat, the godly king, said, Let not the king say so. Let's find a prophet who will speak in the name of Jehovah. And we'll not read the rest of the story, but there did they found a prophet, not only Micaiah, but another one who spoke using the sacred holy name. And then the false prophets joined in and thereby made themselves very susceptible to the death penalty. In fact, that's what happened. But that's an example of the fact that a prophet had to speak using the sacred holy name. The second requirement, turn back to Deuteronomy 18. The second requirement for a true prophet of Jehovah is that his predictions must not be proven false. Now, be careful how you state that. You cannot say that, that he is proven to be a true prophet if his predictions come true. Even Satan and demons can make correct predictions sometime. They can't really fully know the future, but they can know what they plan to accomplish. God may or may not allow that to happen. So the, the fact that a prediction comes true is not proof that the message is from the Lord. But if a prediction is proven to be false, then that does prove conclusively that the message is not from the Lord. And let's just read Deuteronomy chapter 13, uh, chapter 18, again the last verse. We'll read the whole verse this time. When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not nor come to pass, that is the thing which Jehovah, the Lord, hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously. You're not supposed to revere him. Don't honor him. Don't be afraid of him at all. He's not speaking from the Lord. A true prophet could not be proven false in any said, anything he said. We're living in days when there are a lot of people who claim to have a gift of prophecy. 
I did a little bit of an experiment several years ago. I wrote letters to, to everyone in the nation of whom I was aware, and I did a little bit of investigating, uh, those who claimed to have the gift of prophecy. I wrote out uh, scores of letters, and I asked them to give me a testable prediction. I thought that would be interesting to see what happened. Uh, I got back some very interesting answers. One fellow predicted that on March 13, 1980, inflation would increase. And I wrote back and said, sure it will. It'll also increase on March the 12th and on March the 14th. Uh, I need a testable prediction. Uh, uh, another fellow wrote back and told me that uh, within his ministry, the Lord was going to start restoring a full head of hair on bald heads. I, I've been carrying that letter with me for years and showing it to my seminary colleagues, uh, some of whom received great encouragement from that kind of... Uh, but it hasn't been happening. Uh, another fellow, my favorite answer of all, was a fellow who wrote and told me that on, he named a date. I've forgotten the date now in 1979 or 80. He says, on such and such a date, uh, the uh, Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Auto, uh, Kansas City, Missouri, will be blown down by a windstorm. Well, the next day, uh, I noticed on the weather map that everything had been nice and calm. Nothing unusual had happened in Kansas City. So I wrote him a letter and asked him what happened to his prediction. As far as I was aware, the Kemper Arena was still standing. And his answer was great. He said, oh, well, he says, it's probably just as well it didn't happen. I probably would have gotten the big head. <laughs> I like that. At least he was honest. But Moses says that the second test for a true prophet of Jehovah is that his prophecies cannot be proven false. The third test, and I'm not going to take time for us to elaborate it. You can read verses here beginning in verse 18. And if you want to read more detail, back up to chapter 13, in particular verse 5 of chapter 13, which is one of those very long verses. But there Moses says that a prophet cannot contradict what God has already revealed. Now, that's obvious. How long do you think a prophet would last if he stood up and said, Thus saith the Lord, Moses was wrong, you know. And, and proceeded to contradict Moses. Uh, he would not be accepted by anyone as a true prophet of Jehovah. Well, the issue is that men came along, and when they met these tests laid down by Moses, they were accepted by the people of God as prophets of Jehovah, and what they wrote and what was written under their authority, collected, gathered under their authority, was accepted by the people of God when they wrote it, when they said it, as the Word of God. Now, each of the prophets then was authoritative in all the issues upon which they spoke. There's a very interesting passage. I don't think we'll take time to, to turn to it, but there's a passage in Second Chronicles where they're describing the parade they were going to have at the dedication of the temple after Solomon had built the temple, you know. And it says, here's the order. You're supposed to have the Levites here and this here and this. Tell, told about the sequence of the parade and, and concludes the statement, for thus the prophets of Jehovah have spoken. A simple thing like how you line up for the parade, see? It's authoritative because it came from the prophets and it was a thus saith the Lord. They met the tests laid down by Moses. Now, Moses began writing for us. Turn with me to Exodus 25. God told Moses what he was to do when he wrote. And I want you to get something I think is vital. I think it's a greatly neglected theme in our culture today to build on what we've already done. Moses is getting instructions about the tabernacle, and God speaks to him, Exodus 25, verse 21, and tells him, Thou shalt put 
the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. Now, often we've thought only of the tablets, the Ten Commandments being put in the ark. But it's obvious from what follows that it's more than that, that the sacred scriptures themselves are the phrase that's used later repeatedly, laid up before the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18, God instructs Moses to make copies before he does that. But he writes the scriptures and then it's laid up before the Lord. Now, I'm going to ask another one of those questions I don't want you to answer because I don't want to start an argument. Okay? Please don't answer. How many books did Moses write? Don't answer. Because you were about to say five and I would disagree. Moses didn't really write five books. Moses wrote one book. And we've divided it into five scrolls, or they've divided it into five scrolls, based upon subject matter and scroll length. It was very difficult to carry around a handy vest pocket edition of the Pentateuch on animal skins and in a jar to protect it, you know. So they, they divided it up into usable scrolls, and, and Moses wrote a book he kept adding to it and adding to it and adding to it, and it was eventually chopped up into five scrolls. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 31. I want you to notice just a few key verses to build a very vital point here. Deuteronomy 31, verse 24. 31, 24. We'll read a couple of verses here, three verses here. And it came to pass, when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law... We're near the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Remember that. I'm going to ask you a very important question about that in a moment. He'd finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law. We call it the Pentateuch, the Torah. And put it, remember God had told him to lay it up, and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. So Moses writes and is instructed to lay it up before the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. Don't answer. <laughs> Who wrote the end of the book of Deuteronomy? And the answer is, Moses didn't. If, if you read the story, Moses dies and is buried, and the record is there in the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And I know, and you know, of course, that God could have had him write and predict his death and his burial. But it's not prediction, it's history, and it wasn't written by Moses. It was written by the next prophet whom Moses had already introduced, the next prophet who met the test laid down by Jehovah, a young prophet by the name of Joshua, added the end of the book of Deuteronomy and what we call the book of Joshua. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 24, and let's notice that. Joshua chapter 24, notice verse 26. 24. 26. And Joshua wrote these words, where? In the book of the law of God, in the Torah, in the Pentateuch. He added to that book which had been begun by Moses, and in some very unusual historical circumstances here in a different way, he also then lays it up before the Lord. But he writes it in the book of the law of God. Now, the, the break where we've divided the book between Deuteronomy and Joshua is not where Joshua started writing, but where the end of the story of Moses is, and the story of Joshua begins with the new book, the new scroll. And that's 
That's the way it is throughout a long sequence of books in the Old Testament. The book divisions are sometimes arbitrary, as we are aware of verse divisions and chapter divisions are arbitrary. But that's also true of the book divisions, that they've been separated out for special use on special ceremonies, special feast days, separate scrolls, and sometimes simply because of subject matter and so forth. But Joshua added to the book of the law of God. Now then, let me ask you, don't answer, who wrote the end of the book of Joshua? And the answer is Moses. Excuse me, you knew Moses didn't. Joshua didn't. Not Joshua. Again, it tells about his death and his burial. And again, I know there's no problem with God having him write that in advance, but it's not history. It's not prophecy, or rather, it is history. And a young prophet by the name of Samuel wrote it. Samuel wrote Judges, Ruth, and part of 1 Samuel. Turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10, and notice a key phrase here. 1 Samuel 10, let's look at verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom, and he wrote it in, and I'm reading from my King James Version. The reason I do, by the way, is I know where everything is on the page, and so I can't dare use anything else. I know where things are here. But, but he wrote it in a book, my King James Version says. My Hebrew Bible says here he wrote it in the book. What book? The book of the law of God that had been begun by Moses and was added to by Joshua and is now added to by Samuel. He wrote it in the book and laid it up before the Lord. See that? As God had told Moses to do. And we have a sequence of prophets from there on. If you were to take time to read through the Chronicles, you'll find a whole long series of references about this prophet writing about this king. Well, let's just look at one of them. Turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and notice a key verse here. It's right at the end of the book. If you have trouble finding 1 Chronicles, it's right in front of 2 Chronicles. Does that help? 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 29. Now the acts of David... Uh, you're still not there. Excuse me. I hear rustling. 1 Chronicles... 29, 29. Now the acts of David the king, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer. Have you ever read the book of Samuel? And in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer. Have you ever read the book of Gad? <laughs> uh, I've heard pastors ask people, uh, how many of you have ever read the book of Hezekiah? And people will raise their hands, you know. I won't embarrass anyone by asking you if you've ever read the book of Nathan. Uh, obviously, you have not seen a book by that title in the Old Testament. If you were to read through Chronicles, you'll, you'll find notations like that from time to time. If you want to read about the history of King so-and-so, you look in the book of Ahijah the prophet. If you want to read about the history of the next king, you look in the book of Iddo the prophet. If you want to read about the history of the next king, you look in the book of Shemaiah the prophet. If you want to read about the history of the next king, you look in the book of Jehu the prophet. And on and on and on we have a string of prophets. And you might be inclined to say, where are those books? Are they lost? And the answer is no. No. When you read what we label as First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, you're reading the book of 
Samuel, Nathan, Gad, Iddo, Jehu, and so on. These prophets each met the test laid down by Moses and each added to the word of God, telling how God had been working with the people in his time, and especially, of course, with the kings in his time, and recording for us that sacred history of God's working with the Jewish people. What they wrote when they wrote it was accepted by the people of God and laid up before the Lord as Scripture. Copies were made and circulated. Uh, let me have you do an experiment. Turn to Ezra 1. Ezra, that's just keep going the next book, okay? You're right at First Chronicles there, Second Chronicles. Turn to Ezra 1. I have a Texas, Tennessee tongue, and they're not supposed to go fast. But I'm going to read fast, okay? I just want to read several verses in a hurry, and you check me out to see if I do a decent job of reading here, okay? Are you looking at Ezra 1? Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven, hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? Is God be with him? Let him go up. That was too fast, I know. But I think the only thing I did really weird was that I stopped right in the middle of a sentence, in fact, right in the middle of a clause, in fact, right in the middle of a phrase. And the reason is that I was not reading from Ezra. I asked you to read from Ezra. Look on, your Bibles will vary here, but look on the same page of your Bible or on the previous page, wherever you have the last two verses of the previous book, Second Chronicles. And I was reading 22 and 23 there. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoken see there. And notice how the book of Second Chronicles ends. It is chopped smack in the middle of the phrase. They cut the scroll and chopped it right there. And we have enough of the story repeated on the new scroll so that we don't lose the thought. We don't miss out on what's happening. And so you notice that the book of Chronicles ends in the middle of that phrase. The Lord is God be with him and let him go up, 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 up where, you know. Well, the book of, uh, uh, of Ezra finishes that and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel there, see? And, and my, my point that I want to make is what we have in the Old Testament in a very real sense is that each of the prophets came along and they met the test laid down by Moses and they added to the book of the law of God which had been begun by Moses and is added to then by each of the succeeding prophets. Now, perhaps not physically taking the same scroll and adding to it, but in a very literal sense, adding to the book of the law of God, it was understood as, as growing. There was no decision years later on or decades or centuries or a millennia later on trying to decide, should we accept this book as authoritative? It was written by a prophet of Jehovah, and it was accepted as authoritative. It's that simple. Let me teach you a lesson in new math for a moment. I presume that they no longer teach new math in any of the schools from which you came, but uh, I like new math because you can do anything with it, okay? And I'll, I will teach you a lesson in new math. I want to insist that 22 equals 24 equals 39 equals 1. Now, some of you are with me. I've already seen a couple of nods. 22. The number 22 ring any bells? There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. That doesn't ring too many bells, I know. 
But the Jewish people had a special way they liked to play with their alphabet. If you read the Psalms, you'll see how they used it for memory devices and memorizing Psalms and so forth. And there are a lot of places in the Old Testament where you can't see it unless you can read Hebrew. But they liked to play with the alphabet, and they had divided their Hebrew Old Testament up into 22 books because there are 22 letters of the alphabet, and it was an easy way to keep that in mind, to keep that in memory. There are statements from Jewish people in the time of our Lord. 22 books, no more, no less. Any Jew would die before he would allow one to be added or one to be taken away. The Bible that our Lord had had 22 books, that is the Hebrew Bible, 22 books in the Old Testament. Today, a Hebrew Bible, they will tell you that they have 24 books in their Bible simply because they've divided things a little bit differently. They've chopped, they've taken Ruth off. The book of Judges used to end with three stories about Bethlehem, uh, two nice and one naughty. And one of the nice stories, the story of, of Ruth, was made in a separate scroll. That was number 23, if you wish, see? But they didn't add anything to their Old Testament. And likewise, they took an Ezra and Nehemiah and made those into two separate books. And at a later time, other things were done, like the last chapter of Jeremiah, we call it the book of Lamentations, was made a separate scroll. My point is this, that really we don't have 39 books, we don't have 24 books, we don't have 22 books, we very literally have one book. It's it's the scriptures of the prophets, and each of the prophets were adding to the book of the law of God. 22 equals 24, the modern Hebrew Bible, equals 39. Our Bible has 39, but we don't have a single book that they don't have. One of the things that we do, they have a book at the end of the Old Testament. Uh, Well, they, they have things in different order, but they call it the Book of the Twelve. We call it... Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Baca, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. I like to try to do that. We have 12 books there. You see, that gets us a long way toward the 39 right there. And I'll let you figure out how to come up with 39, but I want to insist upon the fact that 22 equals 24 equals 39 equals one book of the Lord. And the writings of the prophets when they wrote were accepted as the Word of God. Jesus referred to the Old Testament as the scriptures of the prophets or as the law and the prophets or as the law. The word prophets can mean whole Old Testament. The word law can mean whole Old Testament. The word law and prophets can mean whole Old Testament for obvious reasons. I believe that someday we're going to have to stand before our Lord. And we're going to have to give an account for how we have honored or how we have failed to honor the words of this book, and that includes the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but I was raised in a Christian home. I'm sure many of you were. I can't remember a time when I didn't believe in Jesus. And as I grew up, that became a problem to me for a long time. It's no longer a problem. I now rejoice in it. But for many years it was a problem because I would hear glowing testimonies of how the Lord had stepped in and worked so fantastically in lives that were just revolutionized that I would be envious of, of that kind of conversion experience. Perhaps you've, uh, you can empathize with that. I remember hearing when I was, oh, 12, 13 years old, an evangelist who came to our church. And he had uh, been a bank robber in his uh, pre-salvation days. And he told about how he had robbed this bank and that bank and how he had, he said, I'd committed every sin in the book. And I started thinking through all those sins. 
and imagining, boy, wouldn't it be fantastic to have been just headed down one direction and the Lord steps in and, and just changes your life and everything is totally different? I wish I'd had such a fantastic experience. I wish I'd been a bank robber. <laughs> Do you ever feel that way? And then I heard other fantastic stories. I never will forget there was an old drunkard in Tennessee. He'd been witness to, he'd been told the story of the Lord on numerous occasions, but he would never accept. One day he was out plowing in his field behind his mule, and a bolt of lightning struck the mule and killed the mule and knocked the old man to the ground unconscious. And two hours later he came to, and when he came to, he came to praising the Lord. Lord, you finally got my attention, he said. And you know what my response was when I heard that story? Well, I wish a lightning bolt would strike me. Wouldn't it be fantastic to have such great experiences? Ladies and gentlemen, I have a fantastic opportunity of traveling around our country, and everywhere I go, I see Christians who are all wrapped up in experiences, who are basing all their convictions upon their experiences, they're experience-oriented Christians, and I'm concerned. I'm worried about that. I realize that we all would like to see God work in fantastic ways. We even have biblical examples. Oh, that God would rend the heavens, the prophet Isaiah cries out. Oh, that he would step down and, and, and make himself known. And we enjoy the opportunities for some unusual experiences when the Lord works in our lives in a very special way. But let me tell you, we dare not build our convictions. We dare not wrap our assurance around our experiences. I heard an old godly preacher who, like I was, I was uh, born in Central Texas and he was also. You would know him if I were to name him, but I'm not going to name him because I'm going to tell a story he told and I think it may be apocryphal, so I'm going to just uh, tell it anyhow. I like the story. But he said he had a dream, and in his dream he stood before the Lord, and the Lord said, What right do you have to be in my heaven? And his answer was, Well, Lord, you, you remember the time when, when I was down there and you sent that lightning bolt and you knocked me to the ground, and I want to thank you for that fantastic experience because I've never had any doubts about my salvation. Thank you for that. And about that time he hears a cackling voice. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Old Satan walks up and says, I got you. Haven't you ever read in the book of Revelation where I, I'm going to empower that false prophet along with that, uh, that false uh, Christ and they'll be able to call down fire from heaven? I sent that lightning bolt and you've, you've wrapped all of your convictions and you've built all your assurance upon an experience. Have you done that? His dream faded. <laughs> And when it was renewed this time when the Lord said, What right do you have to be in my heaven? He said, Well, Lord, I want to thank you. And I've had people tell me stories like this on a number of occasions. I want to thank you for the time I was in the hospital and I was about dead and I just assumed I was going to die, but you sent your angel into the room. That's fantastic if the Lord has ever done that. I don't know of cases where he's done that for sure. But if he did, that would be fantastic. But let me tell you this, you dare not build your assurances upon something like that. I thank you for sending that angel in about the time he hears that cackling voice again. Oh, oh, oh. And Satan says, I really got you this time. 
Haven't you ever read in 2 Corinthians where I'm able to transform myself into an angel of light? I did that. And you've built all of your assurances, you've built all your convictions upon an experience. The third time when his dream was renewed, this time when the Lord said, What right do you have to be in my heaven? His answer was, The same as mine will have to be, and the same as yours must be. Lord, I don't have any right to be here at all in myself. My only right is simply because I believe the words of the prophets whom you sent to show me what a horrible sinner I am and, and, and to point us to the coming of your Son. And then you sent your Son to die on the cross to take care of my sin problem, to make it possible to have a right standing with you. And then you sent the apostles to explain the significance of the death, burial, and resurrection and how we are to apply this to our lives and so on. And my only hope of eternity doesn't rest in any experiences I've had but in the fact that I know that I do believe. I am a believer. Don't point to a time when you believed. Point to the fact that you do believe. I am a believer. And my only hope of eternity is simply that I'm grateful to the Lord because of the words of the prophets of Jehovah and the Son of God himself and then the explanation by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we are prone, as, as the world is, we're prone to look for experiences and to be excited by experiences. And we thank you for great experiences when they happen. But, Father, we want to be excited about the book. We want to be thrilled by the basis of this revelation that you've given us. We want to be as sure of it, we do believe, that it is just as sure as if our Lord himself, your Son, our Savior, would stand and speak to us. These words are just that authoritative. And we want to build every attitude and every conviction, every assurance on these words, not on our experiences. We botch up. We misinterpret. We misunderstand our experiences so much. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these young people. We pray that you'll use them in a mighty way. Thank you for this college and pray that you'll continue to use it in a tremendous way to reach out across this nation and across the world with the message of the prophets and the apostles. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, amen to that. Wasn't that rich? Was tremendous. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith, for sharing with us today. And uh, we, we could take about a, a week of that. That was great. That was great. You're dismissed. Have a great day.